Thank you for that lovely opening and for a little prelude to the book of Job, which we're hoping to consider a few thoughts from together this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, I would invite you to turn in the Old Testament to Job chapter 25. While you're turning there, give you a bit of context as to who Job is and, and why we're considering him today. It occurred to me this week while putting some thoughts together for this morning that this would be the last family Bible hour with a, uh, a quote unquote message of the year. And so um, just trying to reflect on that and some things to get us thinking about God in general. Um, Job had an experience unlike anyone we, it's probably been recorded in the history of time. Um, just as, as you're finding Job chapter 25, just to remind you, so Job was a man faithful to God. And we read in chapter one of Job, uh, this is the scripture speaking of him, not his view of himself, that he was perfect, upright, and that he feared God. He turned away from evil. That was God's view of him as a man. And furthermore, in chapter 1, verse 8, it says that there was no one like him in the earth. And so that is the type of individual we're referring to. But then we're introduced to a scene where the curtain, as it were, is peeled back from heaven. And we are invited into a discourse between the God of heaven and earth and Satan himself. And Satan puts out the premise that, well, here's your man, faithful Job. The only reason he's faithful to you is because of all the blessings you'd showered upon him, his, his homes, his family, his possessions, everything that he has. And God says to Satan, okay, you can touch all that he has, but not himself. This is round one, God permitting Satan to touch Job. And so he lost his possessions, he lost his home, he lost his livestock, he lost his children all gone in a very, very short order of time. And yet in the end, Job was devastated and broken, and yet still praised God. And so then we have round two, Satan again discussing with God, and God allows him, he said, okay, he is in your hand, but save his life. In other words, now you can afflict not his possessions and things, but his health. And Job becomes gravely ill and, and the whole thing. And at the end of it, he's lost everything, save his wife, He's ill, he's feeling horrible, and yet he will not curse God. We are introduced to three of his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and that's where we find ourselves in chapter 25. His friends, if you can imagine, if you were a friend to an individual going through something like that, or maybe you have been the person going through a terrible time, we appreciate sometimes good-meaning, well-meaning friends who come along, and that was their intention here. Unfortunately, a lot of what they said was not very helpful. And in chapter 25, we are introduced to Job's friend, Bildad. And uh, if I could put it this way, he's taken a run at it to, to help his friend Job understand. Because their, their mindset, the mindset of the friends is that God is holy and just. All four of them fear God. However, they cannot come to grips with the idea that someone who was blameless, as Job says he is, could experience such trauma in his life. How could someone who was good experience this? They're saying, well, there must be some evil in your life. This is punishment from God. You can see how that would be a logical line of thinking. And that's the way they were coming out. Now, it wasn't so. It didn't make their right. So they, Bildad speaks in Job 25, and then we're going to consider Job's reply in Job 26, which is some of the most beautiful thoughts expressing God's power, his creation, and just the character and person of God that we need to consider for ourselves today. So let's read together in Job chapter 25. Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, 
Dominion and fear are with him, that is with God. He makes peace in his high places. Is there any number of his armies? And upon whom does not his light arise? In other words, no one. How then can a man be justified with God? Or how can he who is clean, how can he be clean that is born of woman? Behold, even the moon, it shines not, yea, the stars are not even pure in his sight. How much less man who is but a worm and the son of man who is but a worm. Bildad, speaking to his friend here, says, you know, here's the God that we're talking about. Even creation itself, the stars, the moon, he says, they are not pure in his sight. They have been affected by sin in some way that he doesn't quantify here, but all of creation has been affected by the downfall of sin. He says, we can't even imagine. How do you make moon and stars? Like those are so far beyond us. If those things are not pure in his sight, you look down, you get the binoculars of heaven to find you, Job. You're not pure in his sight either. And that's where he's coming at it from. Now you can imagine Job's reply. This is not very helpful, uh, to put it lightly, but that's where Job takes it. So Bildad's considering the greatness of God, and in Job's reply he says, well, let's take it even a step further. Let's consider the greatness of God even to a further extent. Let's continue into chapter 26, Job's reply. The first four verses are Job essentially saying, you're not helping me here. As you will see, Job answered and said, verse 1, chapter 26, how have you helped me, the one without power? How have you saved me, the arm who has no strength? How have you counseled me who has no wisdom? How have you plentifully declared the thing as it is, to whom you have uttered these words and to, whom, to whose spirit came from thee? In other words, I'm weak, I'm broken, I'm strength, and all of what you're saying here is not helping me at all. But if I could add my translation of that, he says, well, you want to talk about God? Let's talk about who God is. Now, as we pause before we read the next verse, if I were to ask you today on the way in, everyone, what are like the most amazing things that we know about what God, who he is and what he does? I would imagine many of us, our minds would be drawn to creation. Like how it all works, the world, the sun, the stars, because these things are big, they're so far beyond us, we can't even imagine how they exist and how they interact together and Job is no different. We're about to see what I'll say as a highlight reel of three or four things that Job says, have you ever thought about how God did this or did that? This is the greatness of our God. And he has a point. We're building up to the end of the very last verse of this chapter is the one that captured my imagination, Job 26, 14. We're building our way towards that. But Job in his reply, first four verses, you haven't really helped me. He says, now let's talk about God and who he is. So 26, verse Job's attempt to describe God. He says, Dead things are formed from under the waters and the inhabitants thereof. Hades itself is naked before him. Destruction has no covering. Maybe you're thinking, what on earth is he even talking about? Those are very puzzling verses. Well, see, Bildad was drawing his attention to the idea that Job was a nothing a worm, if you will, at the end of chapter 25, or perhaps your Bible says a maggot. In other words, stars, moon, you are a nothing in his sight. Um, you could be dead and he wouldn't even know, essentially, is what he's saying. But, but Job here in his rebuttal said, we want to talk about that. Actually, he says death itself, Hades itself, 
It's all naked before him. God is everywhere. He knows everything. There's no escaping God in all of creation. Now maybe, I hope at least someone is wondering, what is Hades anyway? Verse 6. That's not a word we use. Like maybe your Bible says in verse 6, Sheol, or maybe your Bible even says hell. Are these all the same thing? What is he referring to here? Well, let me take three minutes and try to describe what he's getting at here with Hades. We did this in a bit more detail on one Tuesday night a few months ago, but Hades, or Hades, the, the word that you have here perhaps in your Bible, the Greek word, or Sheol, is the Hebrew word, same idea, the place of the dead. This is where the soul would go to be after it had died. Maybe you're thinking, well, I thought the soul went to heaven or to hell. Are they the same thing? Well, remember the time in which you're in. You see, Jesus Christ changed everything. We are at a time here pre-Jesus Christ, Old Testament time. So, so what is the deal? Well, for someone who died in these days, if they had faith in God, if they were faithful to God, their, their soul was carried off to Sheol. If they were not faithful to God, their soul was carried off to Sheol. So then what's the difference? Well, we get a bit of insight as we consider in the New Testament. There was a parable that we read of in Luke chapter 16, a man named Lazarus and an unnamed rich man. They both died. The man who was poor, Lazarus, it says he was faithful to God in his life. He followed God in his ways. The rich man did not. They were both carried off to Sheol. And the, the poor man, Lazarus, it says he was carried off to Abraham's side. Anyone hearing the story would have known, well, Abraham, he is a man of faith. The scriptures declare he was God's friend, that he was righteous with God. So if there is a good place in Sheol, Abraham would be in that place. So we are left to understand that this poor man was in the good part. And then it says there was a great gulf, a section separating off where the rich man was. They could see each other, but they couldn't cross. That is Hades, or that is Sheol. Now, the scriptures also bear testimony in Psalm 16, and then Peter identifies in Acts chapter 2, that the Lord Jesus himself, when he died, he descended to Sheol. So how is that possible? Jesus went to hell? Well, remember, Let's, let's leave the word hell off the side for a second. This is the place of the dead where all would go. So indeed he did. Now, here's another uh, little tidbit and say, well, how do we fit this in? You remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross, there were two thieves beside him, one on the left, one on the right. And the one gave it to him, if I could put it that way, and the other, expressing some remorse, said, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And the Lord Jesus turned to him, looked him in the eye and said, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Well, what is it then? Was the Lord Jesus in Sheol or was he in paradise? Because we know it was three days before he would be brought back to life. Did, did he lie? Of course not. God cannot lie. What if that good half where Abraham was of Sheol, maybe that is what's referred to as paradise? Well, Wrapping it all up, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, later in life, Paul reads of a man who had a dream, had a vision one day of the third heaven, the throne room of God. And it's the only other time in the scriptures we find that word paradise. He said, in the third heaven, I saw paradise. Well, how did it get there? I thought it was in Sheol. If you remember when the Lord Jesus ascended, the scriptures say that he led captives with him. He led captivity captive. I believe the Lord Jesus brought with him, let's say, the good half of Sheol that we'll call paradise. It is now with him in heaven to be there forever. And so for someone who dies today, if they are faithful to God, they are absent from the body and present with the Lord in paradise forever. 
We are left with Sheol, Hades, as the place of the dead, yes, but no longer any faithful to God. Jesus Christ forever changed Hades. Perhaps that was way too much. It's somewhat of an aside. I hope it was helpful to at least someone when we read this word. What is it referring to here? But Job's point is this. No matter alive or dead, all is naked before God. He sees everyone and everything. Now, verse 7. Before we get into the next four verses, I, uh, as Mike mentioned, I, I studied an engineering degree uh, of that, there's a lot of science and so on. Sometimes you'll see a conflict, a, a, uh, a presentation that God and science cannot coexist, that they are opposed to each other. I'm here to share with you today that the Bible is not a scientific textbook, but God and science are not in disagreement with each other. In fact, they will agree because they are both the same origin. The next four verses are not scientific proofs, but what they are is simple statements by a man who knew God about creation and things that it took scientists centuries to discover. And I'm not here to poke fun of scientists either, but I'm just saying God revealed to Job things that his contemporaries didn't know about creation, yet he knew. How did he know them? Because he knew God. You'll see what I mean. Verse 7, Job 26, it says, He, that is God, stretches out the north, over the empty place, meaning the, the heavens, as he looked up into the skies, he said, God, it's as if he had a canvas and he's stretching it out across creation. Did you know that actually it would appear that our universe today is still expanding, that idea of a stretching notion of, of the skies? Again, Job is not trying to scientifically prove these things, but the statement he made is actually remarkably accurate. It is being stretched out across the skies, and it still is so today. I don't know how to prove that or anything, but Job simply knew it and he took it by faith. Remember, he's reflecting here upon the person of God and how amazing these things are. Let's keep going. The end of verse 7. And he hangs the earth upon nothing. If you look at other texts from 4,000 years ago, the, the theories of how earth existed in space and so on range from it was sitting on the backs of elephants to sitting on turtles, to going through a river of milk. These are all, these are all facts. I'm not saying them to be uh, shocking for you today. But they're logical because, as you know, as we know the world around us, things don't suspend in nothing. It doesn't make sense if you were to take a ball and you just set it there and I remove my hand. It doesn't just stay there. We understand it falls. And so it was logical to think the earth was no different. Something must be holding it up. But here is Job, not a scientist, not a PhD or anything like it. But knowing somehow from God, he says he hung the earth on nothing. How did he know that? He knew God. And it was accurate. We continue. Verse 8, he binds up the waters in thick clouds, and the cloud is not torn under them. If you ever think about this, you look up in the sky, you see a cloud. What is it? It's a sack of water. Same thing. You try that. You fill a bag with water and set it in the air and walk away. What happens? It doesn't just stay there. How do the clouds stay up in the air? They're so heavy and full of water. Here, Job's hinting at what we call in school the, the water cycle. You have evaporation, and that water goes up into the atmosphere, and it condenses and forms clouds, and then we get precipitation, and it comes back down, and it all works. We can observe it, and we know it to be so. How is it possible? Only God knows. 
We could scientifically describe how it is, but here's Job simply saying, there it is, Bildad, you tell me how it works. These are amazing things about God and his creation. Verse 9 and 10, verse 10, it says, he compassed the water with bounds. Or perhaps your Bible uses a different word there, the circular horizon until the day and night come to an end. As he looked off at the horizon, he saw that it was circular. And to him, that implied something of a circular nature of the earth. Well, there's still people today that don't believe that the earth is circular in nature. And that was definitely believed at the time. Again, because why would you expect it to be round? It would make sense for it to be flat because everything you saw around you was flat. Again, these are not scientific proofs, but they're just remarkable statements that Job is treasuring in his heart about God and how he formed creation. These are all things centuries later we learn to be so. Verse 11 and 12, the pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his reproof. He divides the sea with his power. By his understanding, he smites the proud. Verse 13, by his spirit, he has decorated the heavens. His hand has formed the crooked serpent. And that might be a constellation. We don't know exactly what he's referring to there, but as he looked up the skies, he describes it as decorated by the spirit of God. And what one of us has not stood up and looked at a, at a starry sky and stopped to consider in awe and wonder how that all came to be? All of these things, Job is like, this is God to me. This is how amazing he is. And they build up to verse 14. And it says this, and lo, these are the parts of his ways. And how little portion is heard from him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Now, this verse is fascinating because I don't know what translation of Bible you have in front of you today, but there are so many different English translations for this word. Let me read it again for you in a few of them. Lo, these are the parts. These are the edges. These are the fringes. These are the outskirts. This is the beginning. This is the tip. This is the glimpse. These are the hints. These are the borders. I hope I covered everyone's Bible here today. I really tried. Whisper. Thank you. Well, the next part gets into whisper, but there we go. All those different words. Why is there so much struggling? Because what he's saying here in this verse, all of these amazing things that we know about creation, the earth, the star, the skies, things that we can't even understand. He says, this is the outskirts of who God is. This is the border. This is the edge. This is the whisper. You see, this verse is a comparison in amplitude. It is a comparison in volume. He's saying, as God shows us all of these amazing things of the creation, he says, that's like a whisper. But then the, the rest of the verse, can you imagine, he says, the thunder of his power. Think of the volume of a whisper versus the volume of loud thunder. He says, as God speaks to us in all of these amazing ways, that's like a whisper. If God spoke to us in who he truly was, and is, and all of his majesty and glory, that would be like loud thunder. If we can hardly understand the whisper, what would it be if God revealed himself fully in the thunder? Could I say that all too often my view of God is far too small? Far too small. I look and I consider and I start to reconcile with his word and see these say, oh yeah, that makes sense to me. Move on to the next fact. I learned one more thing about God. Maybe someday I'll figure it all out. No, I'm, I'm kidding, obviously. But let's just stop and consider the amazing things that Job just did and Job recognizing. You see, Job understood a lot 
about God. We could recognize that. But the most important thing could I say that he understood is he understood enough to know that there was a lot more that he will never understand. The whisper versus the thunder, the edges, the outskirts, and so on. Why doesn't God speak in thunder? Well, he has. If you remember uh, the scene of Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the law. Here we are at Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments, if you will. Perhaps you've heard of those and, and others. The, the tablets that were given and all of the nation of Israel gathered around this mountain. We read this, Exodus 20, verse 18. The people saw and heard the thunder and the lightning and they heard the trumpet and they saw the mountain and smoke. They trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, you speak with us and we will listen. Do not ask God to speak with us lest we die. Sometimes I think, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if God did a bit more of the miraculous? Not just this dusty old book that we have here in black and white text. We can say it's amazing, but wouldn't it be really cool? Again, I'm being facetious here. Wouldn't it be really cool if God struck down with lightning bolts and did some of those things? Could I say when my mind races off to those conclusions, it betrays the fact that I understand so little about God. If we could call as witness this morning the people that have witnessed God speaking in the thunder of his power, unanimously they would say, I never want to see it again. God speaking in thunder in this scene. They said, Moses, you speak with us. You, you speak to God and then you pass it. We don't want to hear God speak anymore. We can't bear it. Exodus 30, no one can see me and live. That was the presence of God. And there's another passage I think of, this idea of whispering versus thunder. And it was God's servant, Elijah. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah was a man of God, very, very faithful to God. And uh, he was brought before wicked King Ahab, and he told him, you know, it's not going to rain for years until I say so, because of your sin. And so it was. They finally came to a day, and, and Elijah uh, proposed, could I call it a bake-off, on Mount Carmel. They said, let's create an altar. You and all of your uh, worshipers of Baal, you call on your God. I will call on the true and living God, and let him be God who answers by fire striking this altar and lighting it on fire and so they spent the entire day the, the uh, worshipers of Baal calling on their God cutting themselves crying and then Elijah's egg in the mind so maybe he's asleep maybe you need to speak louder I, I can't even believe that that's in scripture but he, you can see he's having fun with it because they were worshiping nothing and finally Elijah says God he prays out, he says, I know you've always heard me, but I speak so that these people will hear. Let's get the altar ready. He prepares it. He digs a trench around it. He fills it with water. He soaks the altar with water. You try and light a campfire that's been soaked with buckets of water. Good luck with that. And yet as, as Elijah called for fire from heaven, he lit the whole thing on fire, sucked up the water, the stones, everything was gone. They saw the scene. You think, wow, they would never forget that scene, right? Well, by the end of the day, Wicked Queen Jezebel said to Elijah, I'm going to take your life. And Elijah fled for the hills. He ended up hiding in a cave in a mountain. So well, how could he run? He just saw that. You see, the thunder of God's power didn't change his life. He was but a man like you and I. And then we read of this scene in 1 Kings 19. Flip over to there, verse 11. Comparing again the whisper in the thunder. 1 Kings 19, 11. So here we have Elijah as he's fled. He's hiding in a cave. Lord speaks to him in 1 Kings 19 and says, 
go forth, stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and there was a great and strong wind, and it tore the mountains. Think about that. And it broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, fire. The Lord was not in fire. And after the fire, there was a still, small voice, a whisper. And it was so when Elijah heard it, he unwrapped his face and his cloak, and he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And the discussion goes on. My point of reading that again is this. We get an idea of the thunder of his power, the wind, the earthquake, the fire, and all those amazing scenes that would have been. You know what those brought? Those brought terror. Because we read of Elijah hiding with his cloak over his face in the back of the cave. Probably, I'm putting words in his mouth, but wishing for it to stop. The thunder of his power brought terror. You know what drew him out? The whisper, the small voice of God saying, here I am, let's talk. So then, what is God whispering to us today? This is all interesting. Let's make it very practical and relevant. Here we are, a group of folks. We'll never have this opportunity again. We don't know what the rest of the day, weeks, months, life will bring. But here we are right now. What is God whispering to us today? Well, could I suggest to you that through the very creation that Job is referring to here in Job 26, 14, he says all of these amazing things, that's the whisper of God. Well, what is God whispering to us today? Romans chapter 1, here's one thing that God's whispering to us. Verse 20, since creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Number one, God is whispering through creation that he exists that he exists. He says, everyone is without excuse to know that there is a creator. You may call him what you may, but there is enough evidence of intelligent design that God is whispering through creation. He's not giving the thunder of his power. He said, well, why didn't he do that? More people would believe. No, we've established over and over again when he speaks in that way, it brings terror. And so we're left with this, this whisper of God that he exists. But number two, what is God whispering through creation? Acts chapter 17, you read of Paul, one day he was in Greece, he met a large group of people we referred to as philosophers, high thinkers. He met them on Mars Hill and on his way up the hill he saw there was all these monuments, even one that was labeled to the unknown God, lest they had offended and would miss one, a catch-all, if you will. And Paul says, you're worshiping the unknown God, let me declare him to you. And he engages in a sermon, kind of like what we're doing today. I want to read just two verses of it though. He says, Acts 17, 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Verse 27, God did this so that we would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Number one, God is whispering through creation that he exists. Number two, God is whispering through creation that he wants to have a relationship with us. That he is a God who can be known, 
and wants to be known, that we would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. So then how is it through the whisper of God, how do we find him today? John 14, 6, the Lord Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except by me. See, that is the Christmas message, is it not? Here's our tie-in, our last message of the year. What's the point of all of this? How do we find God? We return ourselves to the very question that our friend Bildad asked in Job 25 that started this all, Job 25, 4. How then can a man or a woman be justified with God? How can we be made right? He didn't have an answer. If it was up to me, without the knowledge of the scriptures, I wouldn't really have an answer either. I look at my life and I consider my upbringing and all the rest of it, and I consider myself generally a pretty good person. I remember one time, one time in my life that I was spanked by my, by my father. One time. So I only ever screwed up once. So that's pretty good. And I'm sure I could compare myself to many of you and say, look at how great I am compared to you. You see, we can always find someone, can we not, that makes ourselves look better. If the standard was each other, we could always find someone that I was more holy or better than or a better person or better inside. We can always do that. But the problem is when we turn the standard and cast it to God himself, we all fall short. So I just got to try harder. I got to do better. But you know what you find as you grow up? That I am actually hopelessly unable to live up to the standard of God as declined, defined in his word. What I need is a substitute. I need someone else. I have realized that in myself, I cannot be perfect and holy before God. And God, in his grace, agrees with me. He said, I have a substitute. That is why he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world. That is why at Christmas time we think of the amazing miracle that is God in flesh. The perfect God. Perfect God and yet a man. And here he was walking in the world. He never sinned once he never did anything deserving of death and yet jesus christ died on a cross wicked cruel shameful why because he loves me god made it possible that through a work of substitution well what what's the catch what are we substituting well god says i will consider the record of my son in your place and i will judge him in your place so that your sins are poured out on him and you to answer the question of bildad and job 25 4 can be declared righteous with god what is the catch that sounds like an amazing deal we haven't talked about the terms of the deal is it money no is it work no is there anything that i can do in my hands in my flesh no god says the only thing i want from you is to trust me to trust me faith do you believe that you are broken, sinful, and in need of a relationship with God? He says, on your confession of faith, the moment you say, I believe Jesus Christ did that for me, he says, you are forgiven, you are declared righteous, not because of anything you did, but because of what his son, Jesus Christ, did. That is how a man or a woman can be declared righteous with God, and we enter into the realities of that today. I've got a quotation as we're wrapping up here in our final few minutes that I want to read from a man named Vince Miller. I share his name because I love the quotation. I don't know Vince Miller from the man on the moon, but 
here we are, and I, I found it was really, um, really hit me in context of this chapter in Job 26. He says this, on this side of heaven, it is impossible to know all that we want to know about God. And while this makes us uncomfortable, God always lets us know just enough, enough that we can come to a conclusion about him by faith. Let me read it again for you. On this side of heaven, it is impossible to know all that we want to know about God. And while that makes us uncomfortable, God always lets us know just enough, enough that we can come to a conclusion about him by faith. You see, God cannot be fully grasped. That was what Job was implying in our chapter 26 that we spend most of our time together uh, this morning. All of these amazing things. There's the earth hanging on nothing. The universe is expanding. The stars are decorations of heaven. Uh, the circular horizon, all these things. How do these things happen? No idea. He says, all of those amazing things, that's God's whisper. That's the edge. That's the fringe. That's the border. All of those words we read before, it's a mere outline of who God is. And if we cannot understand those things, we can't understand the fullness of God. And yet, through that whisper, God has demonstrated to us, yeah, there's been times when he spoke with thunder in that loud of a volume. And guess what? Unanimously, people ran in fear, terrified, never want to see it again. So God says, okay, we'll speak in a whisper. We'll speak through the whisper of creation that, number one, I exist. There is an intelligent creator out there. And number two, he wants a relationship with you. You can ignore the whisper. That is the, the amazing thing, the prerogative of man, that God doesn't force us to do anything, but he says, here's the evidence. It's up to you. If you decide by faith, though, to take him at his word, you're entered into a relationship with God. You are justified in his presence. And that would be the greatest miracle of the Christmas season, to start a new life. Doesn't mean you're perfect. But God, in his grace, in his spirit, helps us. I stand before you today worthy of heaven, not because I am perfect, or even better than I was a year ago or 10 years ago or anything like that. The only reason I can say I am declared justified by God today is because of my substitute. Jesus Christ took my sin, paid the price for it, descended into Sheol, like he said, but he came out the other side. He ascended into heaven today. He is alive there. And when my record is judged before God one day, he will consider not my sin. That's been paid for, but instead he will look at the record of his blameless son. He says, you are justified because you trusted me in your word. On this side of heaven, it is impossible to know all that we want to know about God. And while this makes us uncomfortable, God always lets us know just enough, enough that we can come to a conclusion about him by faith. When we decide to trust Jesus Christ, surrendering our lives to him by faith, one day before us in heaven, what, what does God have prepared? Well, if everything we know about the amazing, awesome power of God today, if that's the edges, if that's the fringes, if that's the border, what's the fullness? Can't answer the question, but I'll leave you with this. 1 Corinthians 2.9, for those who decide to follow him, says this, Eyes have not seen, nor ears have heard, neither has even entered into the heart of mankind 
the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We can't see it. We can't hear it. No one has even considered what God has for us in heaven. It's impossible. We couldn't grasp it today. But one day it's there. These things are prepared for those who love him. Let's pray and ask us, ask God to give us grace to follow in his word. Father God, you speak to us through a whisper. And while that would seem to be a downside, because sometimes I miss it, sometimes I can't hear properly, sometimes I'm just, I drown out the whisper with other silly things of this world. Why can't you speak louder? Oh God, you have spoken louder. And that brings terror. That doesn't bring what I would expect. God, you know best. And so you speak in whisper today to see who will respond by faith, that we might seek you and perhaps find you if we reach out to you because you are not far from any one of us. Today, this very day, we can answer Bildad's question, who then can be made justified with God? We can be made justified today because of the perfect work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If we accept what he did by faith, we leave this building justified with God. We praise you for your word. You speak in a whisper. One day we will be able to grasp the fullness, not this side of glory, but thank you, Father, for revealing to us what you have through your word and through your creation and through your people. We pray that this word today would be a blessing to our soul. So we offer this up in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.